I had the great honor of officiating a wedding. Right? Uh, two people that we love very much. They're not here, are they? No, they're flying. They're, that would be really faithful if they showed up. <laughs> they're on their way to Canada where they're going to ski the slopes uh, for a week for their honeymoon. And uh, Val and Brittany, I guess it's Val and Brittany Dagger now. Uh, and we celebrated their marriage yesterday and uh, had a great uh, time, great ceremony. They're two people that we care about very much. They call the story home. And... Um, we love them, but more than just loving them, I'm proud of them, you know. I'm proud of them for making the decision that they made because it's a decision that's so countercultural, right? It's a decision, that level of commitment is not very common in our culture anymore. I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about commitment in general, commitment that goes beyond yourself, commitment that is for a lifetime. Like, that's pretty rare. Like, we don't even join gyms anymore because it's a year, right? You know, like, like a commitment for a lifetime to one person is a pretty big deal, especially when someone's so young like Valentino and, and Brittany are. They're in their 20s. And, uh, and something is happening in our culture right now that is remarkably noncommittal. So something has shifted quickly in our culture that I think deserves our attention today. And it's not just about marriage, but marriage is a good indicator of it. And this is what's happening, especially among 20-somethings in our culture today. And we have a lot of 20-somethings and soon-to-be 20-somethings at the story. So what's happening is, for the first time in American history, there are more single adults than married ones. And I'm not uh, chicken little. I'm not sounding the alarms here. I don't think the sky is falling, right? Um, but I do think it's an indicator of something that's happening. So uh, I think that we should pay attention. Here's what's happening. For the first time ever, there's more single adults than married ones, and this, this is especially pronounced among 20-somethings. And listen to what happens over the last 10 years, just 10 years' time. That's nothing, right? 10 years' time. 10 years ago, 50% uh, of 20-somethings in America were single, half. And about 30% of 20-somethings in America were married 10 years ago. And about 15% of those 20-somethings in America were living with a significant other. Okay? So uh, I don't know what that other, what, 5%? Is that right? That's not right. Anyway, I don't know what they're doing, but we probably don't want to know what they're doing because they're doing something weird, right? So the others, the others are either married, half married, a third, I mean, a half single, a third married, and 15% cohabitating. And in just 10 years' time, this has shifted completely among 20-somethings. So now, just 15% of 20-somethings in America are married, down from 30 just 10 years ago. So you might think that what's causing that, I think our knee-jerk reaction is to say what's causing that, obviously, is that couples are just cohabitating more. Couples are choosing not to commit their lives in marriage, but they're just shacking up together. But you'd be wrong. That's not happening. That statistic actually has gone down over the last 10 years, from 15% in 2005 to just 14% in 2015. So that percentage has gone down. What's happened isn't that people are just shacking up more. What's happened is that people are just getting in relationships less. So the number of single 20-somethings in America, that percentage is up to 68%. Two-thirds of 20-somethings in America are single. Okay, so this is crazy, and nobody really knows why it's happening. Are people just not falling in love anymore? Like, has Ryan Gosling just ruined women in America? Like, what is happening? 
what's happening in our culture. Nobody really, nobody really knows, you know, what to say about it. And I don't really know what to say about it because the Bible says to be single is a superior life than being married if you remain single for the sake of being faithful to God. And I wish I could sit here and tell you that I think that's what's happening. Like 20-somethings in America are just deciding to be more faithful to God. I wish, oh, I wish I could tell you that that's what's happening in our culture. I just got a hunch that's not what's happening. <laughs> Playing a hunch here. That is not about being faithful to God. I came across a CNN column a couple of weeks ago where the columnist asked a 21-year-old girl why marriage is not in her plans for her future. Anywhere in the foreseeable future, she does not want to get married. And her answer was, I would have a hard time justifying paying $20,000 for a wedding when I could just go to Europe. And the CNN columnist, she thought the girl was joking. And so she said, you know, some might say an attitude like that would threaten the very moral fabric of our society. And the girl replied, she said, but it's Europe. But I could go to Europe. I don't need a husband holding me back from that. I need a travel buddy. You know, I, need, I, I don't need a ring on my finger to have a travel buddy. And, and she said, most people that I know who get married young are unhappy. She said this, I don't mind being alone forever as long as I'm happy. I don't mind being alone forever as long as I'm happy. So I think her words get right to the issue. I think the issue is this. I think we have a sense of entitlement as young Americans, people younger than me, my age and younger, that, uh, that we have a right and an expectation to feel happy most, if not all of the time. And if you don't feel happy at any given moment, you're not living your life right. Someone or something is holding you back from your happiness, and your happiness is your purpose. There's nothing else. Your happiness is all that matters. And so now, I think more than ever, especially young Americans are beginning to equate freedom and happiness with being single and restraint and boredom and sacrifice with being married. So Valentino uh, confided in me yesterday before his wedding. He said that most of the guys on his like court, right, his groomsmen, most of them at some point during the engagement tried to talk him out of getting married. Most of those guys that stood up there looking like they supported him yesterday tried to talk him out of making that decision, right? They said, you're crazy for getting married so young. Why in the world would you get married this young? What are we going to do about all the times that we love to hang out with you? What about our 2 a.m. runs to Taco Bell? What about our video games? You know, what about hanging out? You're going to have to get permission now to hang out because for them, freedom is getting to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. And marriage sounds like the opposite of that. Marriage sounds like slavery to them. And they were trying to talk their buddy out of it. And all of this got me thinking about two questions, very simple questions, but I've been racking my brain about it honestly. What is freedom? What is freedom and what is slavery? A slave is defined this way, a person who is owned or controlled by or excessively dependent upon another person, group, or idea. As I looked at that definition this week, I thought maybe we should stop asking the question, who is a slave? And we should ask, who isn't? Who isn't a slave to something? Who isn't a slave to somebody? The great Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. And that seems to be the case because everyone seems to be a slave 
to something, whether it's money or the pursuit of money, whether it's beauty, whether it's the affirmation of others, whether it's other people accepting us or loving us or finding us worthy, whether it's relationships, whether it's appearance of you know, your life and your, or your own negative thoughts. I've seen people be slaves to their negative thoughts. I've seen people be slaves to religion. Many, many people. Slaves to the Christian religion. And not in a good way, you know, but slaves to the religion. Uh, and and uh, it becomes all-encompassing for them. And, you know, one of the common criticisms that I hear, maybe you've heard it too, about Christianity is that it's kind of like uh, it's repressive. It feels restraining, you know. It, it's like it tries to control people. Christianity tries to keep people in their place and placate believers. You know, the old saying was that, that religion is the opiate of the masses. It just keeps people down. That's the impression that non-religious secular people often have of religion, of the Christian religion, that it actually takes freedom away from you, that it, it, it controls you and restricts you. But here is our problem as a culture. I want to say this in the most non-judgmental way possible, but we have a problem as a culture. Is that In our culture, we confuse restraint with slavery, and we confuse the lack of restraint with freedom. You hear that? We confuse restraint with slavery, and we confuse the lack of restraint with freedom. I did a little bit of research this week, very non-scientific, uh, online research on social media and via Google to find out how people define freedom. Everybody thinks we should have freedom, but what is it really? And so I, I Googled, freedom is, you know, dot, 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 find the most popular searches for, uh, for what freedom is or how to define freedom. And these were the top, some of the top results. The first one was freedom is being yourself without asking permission. And this made me want to just throw up. I just, have you, can anyone explain this to me? Does anyone know what it means to be yourself without asking anyone's permission? Anyone got that figured out? No one? Okay, because I have no idea what that even means. The second one was freedom means walking wherever your heart leads you. <laughs> Are you with me here? Freedom means walking wherever your heart leads you? What if your heart leads you to a Thai massage parlor? What if your heart leads you to a brothel? What if your heart leads an alcoholic to a bar? Is that freedom? Wherever your heart leads you, walking there, is that really what we're calling freedom? The third one was freedom is being in control over your own life. That always works out well. Freedom, freedom, the most accurate description I found online of freedom is that freedom is blogging in your underwear. Now, that sounds good. That actually sounds freeing. I've never done it. But that's the closest thing I could find to real freedom on the Internet, which means we are desperately lost as a culture. We have no idea. We say everyone should be free. We have no idea what we're asking for when we say everybody should be free. Nobody knows what freedom is. Is freedom really just the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it? Is freedom really just the ability to indulge in whatever appetite you feel at any given moment? Is that really freedom? Is that, is that what it means to be free? What, what about when your appetite wants something that looks like freedom, but it's really just slavery in disguise? Is that still freedom then? When you desire something that you really shouldn't have, but you're free to, to have it anyway? Is that 
Is that freedom, having that? I want to tell you, as a pastor, as your friend, since I've come to Houston, I've had the ability to sit with people in multi-million dollar prisons. Houses not far from here in the 77027, where families live inside, fractured and broken, and parents haven't spoken to children in years, and the marriage is a sham. They've been sleeping in separate beds for years, and everything looks so perfect from the outside. From the outside, everyone looks at that and says, I want that. That looks like freedom. And on the inside, people live in change. You see, not everything that looks like freedom really is. Not everything that looks like freedom really is. We've been following the Israelites, the people of God, throughout the book of Genesis and into Exodus. Last week we talked about Joseph and his story and the people coming into Egypt uh, and becoming slaves in Egypt. And today we're going to continue that conversation. We're going to fast forward through some really important chapters of Exodus. Someday we'll come back to them. But for the purposes of today's uh, sermon, we're going to speed along through Moses' calling at the burning bush. We're speeding along through the plagues and all of that. And God has finally set the people free from their chains in Egypt. But just because their shackles have been broken and God has miraculously freed them doesn't mean the people are really free. And this is what I mean. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 14, it says, As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. So the people are free, and they're running away. And now Pharaoh and his army is giving chase. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. In great fear, they said this. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you today, and you only have to keep still. So God had done this awesome, miraculous thing for them. God had set them free. God had broken their chains against every odd. God had set the people free from their slavery, and they're out running free, but they're still in chains because they're still afraid. They're slaves to their fear. Even though God has done this great thing for them, they're slaves to their fear, and even though God freed them, they have found themselves at this obstacle, standing in their way, this huge body of water. The Red Sea now stands in their way, and so behind them, they have their past, giving chase, reminding them of who they were, threatening to take them back there. Some of them want to go back there because it's better to be alive in fear than to be dead in the wilderness. And in front of them, they have this roadblock impeding their journey from who they are to who God promised them they would be. Have you ever been there? God God freed you from something that you never thought you'd be free from, and you ran for it. You took off, and you ran off into the great unknown, and the minute you started to celebrate your freedom, you hit some kind of an impasse, some kind of an obstacle stood in your way, and you said to God, I thought I was free. My past is giving chase to me, reminding me of who I was, and here I am. I can't go anywhere. What did you bring me out here for, God? 
would have been better had you just left me alone. Ever been there? On the shoreline? I have. I've known several people who have as well. I know one girl, she's 30 now, and when she was a child, as she was growing up, her father was distant. Her father was not present. He was an absent father. He was there, but he wasn't there. He never gave her the affection that she deserved as a daughter. He never told her the things that a father should tell a daughter. He never told her that she's wonderful, that she's worthy, that she should be respected. He never gave her affirmation and affection. He never told her she's a princess. He never told her she should be loved and respected. And so she spent all of her adolescence and all of her 20s trying to find that affirmation, that love and acceptance, that embrace that her father should have given her and never did. It was a subconscious search, but that's exactly what she was doing. She was searching for what her father never gave her. She was exactly the type of girl that male predators look for on the dating scene to take advantage of and to use, and they used her. By the end of her 20s, she had slept with over 100 men. And every time she woke up next to someone she barely knew, she felt a little less worthy. She felt a little less, uh, a little less human than the time before. One day, a friend of hers invited her to church, not this church, but a church, and she went. There was something about it that made her go back the next week. And then the week after that, the preacher was giving a sermon about the love of Jesus and how the love of Jesus is better than the love any man can give, and that Jesus, through Jesus, God loves us the way we were meant to be loved. And that day, she decided to follow Jesus. She made Jesus a promise. She said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and I'm not going to bed with another man until I'm married. An end of story, and she lived happily ever after, right? You think that's how it went? You think that on the way home from church that day, she didn't get text messages from those men who used to use her and wanted to use her again? You think that men who would respect her and honor and cherish her were knocking down her door to come and respect and honor and cherish her when she didn't even know how to respect herself yet? No, it took time. And she had to learn to live in the fear of being alone for a while. She went to bed alone for a long time while Jesus taught her how to respect herself again so that the kind of man who would respect her would be drawn to her and attracted to her. It took time. It took her ignoring those text messages saying no thank you to her past, fleeing the past as it chased her as the text messages rolled in and as all the reminders and the rumors pursued her and reminded her of who she used to be and who she really is. So she faced a decision at the shoreline as she stood in front of this obstacle as her past gave chase. Will I be faithful? Will I trust God? Or will I give in and go back? You've been there. As have I. I know another man uh, who's a little older than me, and all of his life, he was the model Christian. You know this guy. I mean, you know this guy, because this guy is just the guy everyone looks up to in the church. He's Mr. Christianity. He has a great family. He's a good father, a good husband, and just an upstanding citizen, a deacon in his church, a leader on all these committees. And then one year, it all kind of fell apart, and one year, his wife got really sick, and so naturally, she distanced herself from him it was hard in the same year his best friend died unexpectedly in the same year 
his industry tanked and life at work got really stressful and he made a bad decision, a really bad, inexcusable decision that he doesn't explain away. He doesn't know why he did it. He owns it. But instead of giving him the same kind of grace and mercy that he had shown so many others, his church basically kicked him out. His church said, you're no longer welcome on this committee or this committee or that committee. And if you really want to come, you can come. But he felt pitied any time that he came. He didn't feel comfortable at the church anymore. And so he never fell out of love with Jesus, but he fell out of love with church. Have you been there? He stayed in love with Jesus, but he never knew if he could trust the church again. One day he found himself standing outside the front door of the Story Houston on the shoreline. The door was his obstacle in the past, and all the doubt and all that fear was chasing him. Would he risk going inside and finding a bunch of people who knew who he was and that decision that he made and how it affected people? Or would he risk going inside and finding Jesus and a new community? Would he risk all the loss and shame of his past for the purpose of finding his future in God? These are the kinds of decisions we all face on the shoreline That's where Moses tells the people, do not be afraid, guys. He doesn't tell you there's nothing to be afraid of because there is. In Houston today, right now, there is something to be afraid of. All of us are a little on edge. All of us are a little jittery about how the economy is doing and our friends are losing jobs. It scares us. It's not that there's nothing to be afraid of. Moses says, in the face of what you should be afraid of, don't be afraid because the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be still. The Lord will fight for you. For you. It took more time than she thought that it would, but that young woman I described to you is now living a stable and godly life. She's been dating the same man for six months now. He keeps his hands to himself. He respects her, treats her like the princess that she is, even though he knows all about her past because Jesus taught her to respect herself. And he respects her too. And that man who stood outside our door that day months ago walked in, and he's now a member of this community, serving on several teams. He has a new church that loves and respects him in spite of the mistakes of his past. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. Exodus 14, 21 to 25. We continue now. The Moses then stretched out his hand over the sea, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them. All of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers at the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw them into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The people in that moment of decision, they chose to trust God, even as their past gave chase and even as this obstacle stood in front of them. Because they weren't just free from the Egyptians and their slavery anymore. They were free from their slavery to fear. And this, guys, is what we don't think about enough. We think about freedom in terms of your freedom to choose, to do what you want. Your freedom to live your life without anyone telling you what to do. Your freedom to be you without asking anyone's permission. Your freedom to walk wherever your heart leads you. That's how we think about freedom. 
We don't think about freedom from the tyranny of your own fear. Freedom from fear is what God offered the people. Freedom from fear. We think about it completely different. We think about freedom of having what you want, which is why nobody gets married anymore, if we're honest. Because nobody wants to commit to something that's not going to make them happy all of the time. That's crazy in our cultural understanding today, right? Nobody wants to commit because freedom is being yourself without asking permission. Which brings us to Miley Cyrus again for the second week in a row. I've mentioned Miley Cyrus in a sermon. That's some kind of record, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Miley Cyrus describes our culture's understanding of freedom perfectly, I think, in her song, We Can't Stop. Sing it with me if you know it. I'm just kidding. Don't sing it. She says, and I quote, it's our party. You're going to have it in your head now, aren't you? It's our party. We can do what we want. We can say what we want. We can love who we want. We can kiss who we want. We can't stop. We won't stop. We run things. Things don't run we. Which, if I could just say real quick, this isn't uh, just bad theology, y'all. This is really bad grammar. If I could just point this out right here. This, somebody tell Hannah Montana, this is not how this works, grammatically speaking, okay? Things don't run we. That's a problem on many levels, okay? But this is just a bad idea. It's not just bad grammar. It's a bad way to live your life. Like, you can't stop. Freedom is really getting whatever you want any time. Here's what I want you to know today. I've known plenty of slaves, hundreds, thousands of slaves who could have and did have whatever they wanted. I've known many, many slaves who had whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it, who had the resources to buy and have and acquire and sleep with and kiss whatever, whomever, or whatever they wanted at any time. Because freedom isn't getting whatever you want. Freedom is going without whatever you desire and being fine with it. Freedom is going without whatever you desire and being fine with it. That is what freedom is. That is why Christians intentionally go without things for certain periods of time. We call it fasting, right? This is the, the season of Lent, begins this Wednesday. And traditionally, Christians all around the world will give something up that we otherwise really love to do or to consume or whatever for 40 days until Easter. And we call it, we call it fasting. You know, you, you give away, you give up coffee, you give up Facebook, You'll give up chocolate, you'll give up red meat, alcohol, whatever. Anybody want to name your thing you're giving up starting Wednesday? Y'all can talk too. It's not a one-way street. Okay, you got three days to decide, all of you. You got three days to figure out what you're going to give up before Lent starts, okay? So it's got to be something that you really love too. Don't go giving up asparagus <laughs> or something. That's not a sacrifice, Okay. But th this is why we do it. So I think when secular, non-religious types look at Christians and our fasting, what they see is just more repression. 
They say those silly Christians, they think they're going to win God's favor by showing how religious and pious they are by, you know, going without something that they would otherwise love to have. You know, it's like that self-flagellation kind of thing they used to do in the dark ages. And, and I, think, I think secular people look down on Christianity and Christians and they say, oh, it's just it's archaic. That's silly. You know, if you want coffee, you should have coffee. You know, if you want chocolate, you should have chocolate. That's what it means to be free. You're free. And, and that's just another way that religion controls people. But that's just such a wrong way of thinking about fasting. Fasting isn't about repression. Fasting is about freedom. Because if you really desire something and you can't live without it, what does that make you? You're a slave. There is no other way of putting it. If you really want something, you really like something, and you can't stop from doing it, you know, if you just need to say what you want and kiss who you want, love who you want, and all this stuff Miley talks about, like, if you can't live without all of that, you're a slave. And in this way, fasting is this rebellious act of freedom in the face of rampant consumerism that tells us we should have instant gratification all of the time. I want to hear an artist uh, speak, a famous local artist in Kansas City at a museum a few years back, and she looked exactly like a, a famous modern artist would look. You know, she had the dreadlocks, and she had big glasses, ironic big old glasses, and she had tattoos, and like her skirt looked like a tablecloth from a Cracker Barrel or something. I don't know. She was just like full-on, you know, hippie uh, artist type. And after her lecture, she took some questions from local art students, and one of them asked her how and when she decides to actually start painting. And she said this. She said, the first step in my creative process is knowing my boundaries. She said, I would love to be able to paint the whole city, but art doesn't work that way. I'm not capable of painting the whole city, and if I were, it wouldn't be very good art. She said, before I paint, I need a canvas, and I need to know its exact dimensions. And so a light went off in my, in my head as I thought about freedom and slavery and faith and fear. And I, I thought for just a, a minute, I thought freedom maybe isn't doing whatever you want and painting wherever you want. Freedom is knowing the size of your canvas and being fearless to create within its limitations, within its boundaries, right? And then I thought about the Bible and all the Bible stories that secular people and myself in my secular phase, I love to criticize stories where it looked like God was just arbitrarily limiting the people, like the Garden of Eden where God says, eat all this, but don't eat from this tree. It seems like a game. But what if God is showing the people their limitations so that they can be a part of creation, so they can know their boundaries and they can create within them? What if you could say the same thing about the Ten Commandments, the same thing about the whole book of Leviticus, the same things about Paul telling the early Christians to live sober lives, to save sexuality for the marriage bed? What if the Bible isn't a rule book? What if it is a canvas on which we are free to paint if we will have no fear? To be part of God's creative process. What if the stuff in it isn't about religious repression but it's about freedom and that brought my thought process back to my marriage and marriage in general but especially my marriage I've been married for 16 and a half years I married Giovanna on my 13th birthday because <laughs> I'm uh, I'm country folk you know 
uh, that's how we do it. Um, so over these past 16 and a half years, have there been times when I felt restrained by my marriage, restricted or controlled by my wife? Guys, I'd be lying if I said no. Have there been times I'd rather watch Making a Murderer on Netflix instead of Pride and Prejudice? Again? <laughs> yes. But here's what 16 and a half years of marriage have taught me. That I can go to bed with a smile on my face, with or without Making a Murderer, because Pride and Prejudice makes her so happy. It makes her so happy. To watch Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth, what's your name, doing their thing, you know, it makes her so happy. And it makes me happy to make her happy. And there's a different level of freedom in that. When one man figures out a way to live his whole life making one woman feel secure and safe and happy and treasured and valued and loved, meeting her needs and exceeding her expectations. And when that one woman does the exact same thing, for the man in her life and she does everything that she can to make him happy and meet his needs and go beyond herself to exceed his expectations of her. There is a different level of freedom in that, a level of freedom that is so rare in the world that we live in, a freedom that goes so far beyond just getting whatever you want whenever you want it. Laying down your life for someone, somehow in the mystery of God's creation, that's where freedom is. That's what freedom means. Now, what I want to say to those of you who might be in that demographic I described earlier, really all of us, avoiding things like marriage for fear of losing your freedom, it's a little bit like avoiding things like exercise for fear of losing your figure. It just uh, doesn't work, work that way. It doesn't really make sense. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. This is a quote from Lewis. He says, love anything, and your heart will certainly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. And this is where the Israelites stood in Exodus 14, on the shoreline, with the damnation of their past in hot pursuit, and this obstacle in front of them, and the risk of their future before them. If they wanted to be free, they were going to have to risk something. If they want to be free, they were going to have to sacrifice something. They were going to have to trust that God would make a way. If they wanted to be free, they would have to do the crazy thing of running toward this huge body of water and trusting that God would make a way for them. If they wanted to be free, they would have to start running toward the water. The other day I was talking to a guy that I had the privilege of baptizing here several weeks ago, and he was telling me that he has no idea why he chose to be baptized, which is always what a pastor wants to hear. I have no idea why I did that. You know, he said, I'm a secular guy. I'm not even a religious guy. And I 
decided to be baptized on a whim. I didn't even plan to do it. But you talked about Jesus in a way. I just found it so compelling. And I love Jesus. And I wanted to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And even though it went against everything that I'd ever learned in college and everywhere else in my life, I went running. He went running, and it struck me that 3,400 years ago, a group of former slaves went running toward the water, trusting that God would make a way, and several weeks ago, this upwardly mobile, secular Houstonian went running toward the water, trusting that God would make a way, and they both found their freedom in God. John chapter 8 says this. It says, if Jesus makes you free, you will be free indeed. No matter what chains you came here wearing, the invisible chains around your heart, chains of fear, chains of lust, the chains created by the betrayal of your past, Jesus can set you free indeed. No matter what obstacle stands in your way between you and your future, no matter what impasse you think is so, uh, is so huge, Jesus can set you free. No matter how your past is hunting you down, trying to remind you and convince you of who you were and that's how you will always be. Trying to put you back in the chains that God set you free from. Jesus can set you free. And if he's working on your heart today, if you came here knowing that it's time to do something else, to do something different, you don't have to do anything religious or spectacular. All you have to do is make one simple decision and that's where it all begins. To make one decision, to say some words under your, under your breath. You don't have to say them out loud even. You can just repeat them in your heart after me. All you have to do is say, Lord, I know there's much to be afraid of, but I'm choosing not to be afraid. Jesus, I'm tired of being a slave. Lord, I know it won't be easy, but Jesus set me free. I trust you. I follow you. And I want to be free. Take a risk. Know that it won't be easy. But the Lord will make a way. Run toward the water. And he will make a way to set you free. Today, right now, don't let the moment pass.